Well, today we're going to start, I appreciate Drew um, last week filling in for me, and, and if he was here today, he was going to finish what he taught, He started. He had a two-part, and um, he emailed me this week there, um, I think at Lake Hartwell, maybe Burton, I can't remember, and um, he said, but he really would like to finish what he started. I, I didn't ask him what he taught, but... Um, we'll see if we can fit that in sometime soon. But today we're moving out of the Olivet Discourse and we're starting um, the next phase of the Passion Week, if you will, of our Lord. And and we're going to look at the first um, few verses, first nine verses of chapter 14. So if you turn with me, let's read those. Uh, chapter 14 of Mark. And verses 1 through 9. Verse 1 says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor... For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought opportunity to betray him. So remember that we said a long time ago, actually when Tim Ryan was teaching the class a a long time ago, I was trying to remember when it was, back in chapter 3, when would that have been? A long time ago, (laughs) a year and a half or so ago. We, we saw that that's kind of where the conflict with Jesus and the religious leaders began. And it's been going on since then. Chapter 3, verse 1, just to refresh us, said, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that, he might, so that they might accuse him. All right, so that started way back then. They've been kind of had the microscope or telescope, if you will, on him, trying to find a way to trip him up so they could accuse him. Well, that that conflict reaches its climax in the Passion narrative, and it's followed, of course, by the triumph of the resurrection on Easter morning. Most most commentators agree that these events uh, that we're getting into in chapter 14 and following the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, most commentators agree that these events constitute the heart of the Christian gospel. Matter of fact, there seems to be a, um, and, and I've read this on several different accounts, that, that this story, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, have, 
have been the first part of the story of Jesus to be written down and, and circulated continuously as a whole. And what, you know, when, when I say that to you, the gospel passage, you know, the, the heart of the Christian gospel, what particular passage of scripture pops into your mind? If you, you know, just in your mind think right now that if you were in, um, I don't know, Zimbabwe, let's say, and, and you're with a, no, it, they probably have heard the gospel everywhere there, but okay, somewhere in the Middle East, right, a 100% Muslim country, you find yourself there on business perhaps, and and uh, and, and you are desirous to share the gospel with somebody, so you're at dinner and some guy makes, a, your business associate in that country makes a conversation with you and you feel like, okay, this is a good opportunity. But you know that this guy has never heard that word, perhaps never heard of Jesus. What, what would you say? You know, if you just said, well, let me tell you about the gospel. You know, does, well, what in the world is that? That's kind of a weird word, isn't it? What does that even mean? What pops into your minds? Good news. That that's an exact translation of the word, right? The good news. Okay. You just had that conversation with a guy. Well, good news of what? Am I getting a raise? You know? What? What's the good news? How would you explain that? What do you think? Or what passage of scripture pops into your mind? What do you think? You know, here you are at dinner. The guy says what good news? What would you say? There you go. And uh, you want to read that for us or quote it? These guys, some of the guys in here ought to be able to quote that one right now. Wasn't that y'all's memory verse this week? Yeah, what was it? <laughs> That's right. I want to hear one through four, though. But y'all, they have three through four. Somebody want to read that? First Corinthians 15, one through four. <laughs> All right. You read it for us, Daniel. Yeah. I got it. All right. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, that in a nutshell is the gospel, right? That's all you got to go to. You know, you're telling about Jesus Christ. Now, you can imagine how that conversation would go with somebody that has never heard of Jesus. You would have to go into a lot more detail, right? But the interesting thing to me is nowhere do I see in the New Testament, the Paul or any of the other apostles or disciples or where Jesus himself does what most evangelistic methodologies of today do. You know, well, pray this prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart, and that's the gospel. Well, that's not in the Bible, right? It's, it's the explanation of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Why would that make a difference in somebody's life? What takes place when you explain that? What are you actually really explaining? There's a way out. There's a way out, sure. A way to deal with your guilt, guilt. right. You know, I love the words, and somebody in a foreign country, if you're talking, if they're, you know, you're speaking in English with them, they may not have a 
complete understanding of our language. Most of us, well, me anyway here, I don't, I'm, I am an English speaker, but that the words, the substitutionary atonement, right? If you can explain that to somebody and they get it, you know, that's when the aha moment is. When you say, you know, the guilt, like Lee said, you know, we are guilty before a holy God and we can't do anything about it. But there's one that can. And that's, you know, to me, that's the good news, the gospel. So, you know, that's right. And and that's what this whole week was about, right? Of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So this was written down in, in, in early times and circulated around the first actual, I don't know if we would call it the Bible or manuscripts or what you would call it, but that it was circulated around Jerusalem earlier than any other accounts of what we may call scripture. <clears throat> so the importance of the passion and the resurrection of our Lord for the early church is evidenced not only with the, the being the early written accounts, but the relatively large amount of space that the narrative takes in each of the gospels to explain it, especially in Mark. Mark has 661 verses well, 128 of those 661 are devoted to this week, to the resurrection story. And a total of 242 of them are devoted <clears throat> to the last week of Jesus, the 128 to the passion and the resurrection story, and a total of 242 are devoted to Jesus' last week. So a third of the Gospel of Mark consumes uh, is in this last week here. So these events form the basis of the church, um, the witness and worship, the lifeblood of early Christianity. And the witnessing church proclaimed the crucified and living Savior, and the worshiping church reflected on the meaning of these events in, in its inner life. And the section that we're moving into here basically has two themes, the suffering of Christ and the triumph of Christ. Now, the suffering is highlighted by three different things. The first is his betrayal and denial by his followers, right? By Judas and Peter and, and at the end, all of the disciples. Would, would you consider that suffering? All of your friends, the people you'd ministered with, or, you know, they deny you? I certainly would, right? And secondly, his trial before the Sanhedrin and Pilate with its injustice and mockery. I remember when Shane preached this a long time ago to us as a church in Luke. And, you know, I was just, you know, I was very humbled to see how the Lord, that whole, this whole scene, you know, with the injustice that was done upon him. We look at the legal systems of today and we see injustice from time to time perhaps, but nothing like this, right? And then thirdly, his crucifixion with its brutality and its shame, its utter shame. Well, the triumph of the story is, of course, as Jesus comes through his glorious, through in his glorious resurrection on the third day after that crucifixion. So back to uh, chapter 14 and in verses 1 and 2, the, we have the, as the ESV says, the title of this is The Plot to Kill Jesus. It's two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Passover is the Jewish festival commemorating the occasion when the angel of the Lord passed over the homes of the Hebrews 
at the night that he, that he killed the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. You remember that? That is a great passage to look at in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12 of, you know, that was the last plague. And, you know, this was, this was the end. God was ready now. And, you know, they, he gave the instructions to put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And if the, when, when, not if, but when the death angel comes, he will pass over. Now, this is, I believe, correct me if, if I'm wrong with this, but this is the first one of the plagues that actually would have an impact on the Israelites, Right? The other ones just happened to the Egyptians. But this one, but God gave provision, right? This one would have impact on the Israelites, but God gave provision. And if you put the blood on the doorpost, when I come, if it's there, you know, now we don't know by scripture, but I wonder if there were some people that didn't. Oh, you know, he ain't bothered us with the other nine. He's just going to be all right this time too. You know, maybe, maybe there were, you know, there's, obstinate people right and uh, perhaps some would be like that um i was sharing this with somebody the other day that in john i think it's in john 129 when john the baptist is out in the wilderness with some of his friends and jesus walks by kind of passing by paraphrasing john says hey look guys there's the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world these were jews that he was talking to what what actually happened there? Do you think that Jesus, you know, when John said that and they all looked, that they saw a lamb? Or what, you know, it was Jesus, right? Still in his physical body walking by. What was the connection that would have happened to these guys? You're standing there. You're a Jew. You know about this event because you still practice it. What goes on there? You know, I mean, what? You talk about an opportunity to share Christ, Right. Well, let me tell you, you know, you don't have to put the blood up there anymore. You know, he's the one sacrificed. We don't have to kill the lamb every year anymore. Uh, You know, I love sharing that story with unbelievers. That one just, you know, you go back to the Old Testament and you show them and they're thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe we need to be doing that too. You know, what do, you know, and then you can show that this lamb that was sacrificed, if his blood is poured out on your heart, then it's for the remission of sins, right? So, the Passover festival um, from there. The lambs used in the feast were slain on the 14th of Nisan, and the meal was eaten that evening between sundown and midnight. Now, according to Jewish reckoning, I had a hard time with this because it just, they just, I don't know. I don't, if any, has anybody studied Jewish history a lot? It just gets just way confusing to me. There's just so much little Jot and tittle that has to be in a particular order, you know, and this, that, and the other. So, you know, to me, it's, uh, you know, morning is from midnight till noon. At noon, it turns afternoon, you know, and then, you know, we all go to bed at night. But evidently, according the way that they reckoned it, it, the eating of this meal would have been on the 15th of Nisan, even though it was the same day, because the Jewish day began at sundown. So the lamb was actually slain on the 14th and eaten on the 15th, even though in our minds today it was all done on the 14th, I guess. That's the only way I can reconcile that. But, um, so the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed the Passover, and it lasted for seven days. Um, it commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt. It was named for the flat bread that they took 
with them when they made their hasty escape. Remember, that was unleavened bread and um, the flat bread. I guess, is that, um, I don't know, does pita bread have leaven in it? Yeah. It, it's not the same thing? Okay. Matzah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. So since these two celebrations were so closely intertwined, the terms Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread eventually became interchangeable terms. And we see that in passages like uh, Matthew twenty six seventeen. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Luke 22, 1, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And, you know... I, I really, I do like the ideas of going back in our minds of and remembering, right? Why is that important? I mean, they had a whole, you know, religious celebration in the remembrance of of the death angel passing over and of their exodus from Egypt, which was tremendous deliverance for them, right? Even though shortly thereafter they were griping about it, but nonetheless, it was a tremendous deliverance for them. Why, why is that important for us? To, for not theirs, but ours. I, I like reading this because we get, or at least I do, you know, I forget sometimes where God really brought, you know, brought me from. You know, I, you know, I just, I'm amazed when I go back. And I remember years ago not um, liking to go back there, you know, thinking, oh, you got to get beyond that. Look what God's doing in your life now. Da, da, da. No, it's really good to remember, is it not? Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, uh, and I, I remember, it's probably been four or five years ago, I had a uh, devotional I was using, which we have at the church um, bookstore called um, Voices of the Past or Voices from the Past. And it's a compilation of Puritan devotions that somebody painstakingly um, put compiled together and it's fantastic and 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 I noticed that I there was a pattern in there for a month or so where that's what the Puritans were doing were they they were using devo- doing devotions remembering where they'd come from and you know that's a healthy thing for us is it not if you know w- what does it generate in your life when you do that Gratitude, certainly. You know, what else? Okay. Humility. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the more, is it true with you that the more you grow and move in your walk with the Christ, the more that has an impact on you? You know, it is for me, you know. Um, the, the more I study and the longer I'm a Christian and the more I worship and walk with God, the the I realize how little I really understand about this, right? Which then it's good for me to go back and remember where I came from, and it's okay, right? So, you know, praise to these guys for doing, you know, following their their laws of remembering these things, and it's good for us to do that as well. So, the this Last Supper. Uh, Passover meal took place on Thursday night and this decision to arrest Jesus because this took place on a Thursday night this decision to arrest him must have taken place on Tuesday because the phrase two days before in verse one tells us you know well then it's still Tuesday right and Matthew's account says uh, 
that it was when Jesus had finished the Olivet Discourse. So as I said a minute ago, the religious authorities had been looking for a way to get rid of him. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 6, uh, chapter 11, verse 18, chapter 12, verse 12. And they wanted to kill him for one reason only, to protect their power. Now, we'll see at the end that this really was all the sovereign plan of God unfolding, right? But it's interesting how God uses people. He uses us today in that that sovereign plan of his as well. But they wanted to protect their own power. Jesus Christ was a threat to them. With him around, they couldn't pose as the holier than now, the godly imposters they were. Jesus exposed their lies and their hypocrisy. Um. Now they renewed their, their efforts. They intensified their efforts to expose him. And, and they, they wanted to proceed, however, with utmost caution because they had to protect their own integrity, right? Since Passover was a pilgrim feast, which we studied way back, um, what was that, uh, way back in chapter 11, Moving forward, you know, that all of the hundreds of thousands of people that were in Jerusalem right now, well, they're all still there. From Pilgrims from all of the known world were there, right? The chief priests and the teachers of the law realized that to move now would probably be way too risky because that would bring a riot on. You know, the, the, the people, the, he had too many followers right now, right? So it would bring a riot. <coughs> And they didn't want that, so it'd be wiser to wait, perhaps, for a moment when the pilgrims had gone back. But it, it's interesting that they were trying to do this by stealth, the ESV says. And that word uh, is an obsolete verb at this time. It means to, to decoy, trick with bait, craft, deceit. Uh, commentator Hebert says this reference to their guileful malice throws a flood of light upon the true character of these Jewish religious leaders, right? They wanted to do it, but because of their pride and and the fact that they didn't really want to be exposed, they were going to do it secretly, trickery, bait, deceit. And um, then um, we come to verse 3. And this is really perplexing as well. Um, Things like this throw me for a loop. So look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, there seems to be some confusion between Mark's account and John's account. John chapter 12, remember we said in verse 1 here, it was now two days before the Passover. John's account of this uh, incident in Simon's house in Bethany, it says, John 12, verses 1 through 3, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus said, raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So that's a head-scratcher, right? One of them says two days, one of them says six. Who's right? What's going on? 
Well, John MacArthur explains it this way. Quote, Mark interrupts the narrative at this point with a flashback to the previous Saturday, six days before the Friday of Passover, when the Lord arrived at Bethany just east of Jerusalem. In stark contrast to the religious leaders who hated Jesus and wanted him dead, the woman featured in this short vignette exhibited profound and sacrificial love for her Savior. Though this episode is out of chronological order, it's Its theme fits perfectly in the final section of Mark's gospel where the focus is on preparations for the death of Christ. It is a window of love in a wall of hate. So it's really, you know, have you ever wondered why there's four gospels? You know, and some of them have all of the same things. You know, two of them have the same things. Sometimes three of them have the same and one doesn't. Sometimes one has, only one has the account. Why four, and why are they that way? Well, I heard early in my Christian life, um, when I was in the, I had a great blessing when I was first saved. I was in the pest control business, and which put me in a vehicle driving around Atlanta for many hours every day. So the Christian radio station and cassettes became my friend, right? I listened to preaching all day, every day. And I'd be in customers, maybe one of y'all's driveway, you know, finishing that sermon. You know, you can see him looking out the window. What's he doing out there? But, <laughs> um, and and I, I heard Chuck Swindoll explain that one time. And he said it was like this. If, if, um, if I took um, Bob and Daniel and Tim and Curran and I gave each one of them one of those uh, one-time use cardboard cameras, right, I said, okay, each of y'all got 24 pictures. I want you to take and go around, you know, the complex here of Cherokee Christian School, and I want you to shoot 24 pictures, you know, because of Tim's desire or like for this particular view. He's going to do that. Well, everybody else might like that one, too, you know, and take a picture of that. But, you know, somebody's going to have just one thing. You know, I really like that blackboard back there. I'm taking a picture of that, and everybody else, oh, that thing's... Really dull. It's just black. There's no nothing on it. You know. You see what I mean? So that's how these guys, the gospel writers, they were all inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but they wrote with their own personalities. Just like if you're photographing the same thing I'm photographing, your personality is going to come out in your photo as well. So I don't really think there is a conflict here between Mark and John. It's just, as John MacArthur says, Mark interrupts the narrative that he was on, and we know that Jesus had just finished the Olivet Discourse and that he was going back to Bethany. That's where he hung out when he was uh, um, in Jerusalem, just a couple miles out, the home of of um, his friends. And so that's, I think that explains it. I, I looked at four or five other commentaries to try and get a handle on that. And I like that explanation the best. It's simple and it seems to fit. (laughs) So if you want to study some more this week and come up with something else, you can. But uh, Simon the leper isn't mentioned anywhere else. And uh, Simon was a very common Jewish name. And obviously he'd been healed by Jesus. And perhaps this was an appreciation dinner. How, How do we know he had been healed? That's right. He wouldn't have been there, you know, but the fact that he was identified as that 
is interesting, right? So every, what a testimony. You know, man, that dude had leprosy. Look at him now, right? Yeah, he would have been banned from the community. So Jesus reclining at the table. I can't say it the way the text says it. I have to put the. Are you all all right with that? that you have a New American Standard, don't you, Tim? Does it say it that way? At table? I think it's verse 4. No, I'm sorry, verse 3. Well, it's in italics, at the table. Okay. <laughs> I have to insert the word uh, the there, but I keep reading that in the Bible, and I think, man, that's a misprint, <laughs> at table. But um, Jesus reclining at the table, this we know was a customary posture for eating meals. And... Um, a woman who Mark doesn't identify, but we know from John's gospel, again, looking at that it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, think of this astonishing moment. Mary, who we knew or know from Luke 10.39, loved to sit at the feet of Jesus, right? Well, she unexpectedly approaches her reclining Lord carrying a priceless alabaster flask of imported Indian perfume. Now, I had the privilege last year of going to Egypt, and our, uh, the last day, you know, is when you do your sight, or at least when, the way we did it, was when we did our sightseeing, and we got to go to the pyramids, and, and we were riding in one of those horse-drawn buggy things, and like all places on the mission field, there's the little trap, you know, that you take all the Americans, and, and um, same junk in all of them, but... This one guy took us to uh, this perfume shop, and it was really, it was kind of, it, it was really kind of neat, really. But very interestingly, I had Mark Shaw with me, who's kind of a guru on addictions in our country, and written a lot of books on it and everything, and is a speaker all over the world on addictions. It's he and I, and we're in this back room, and they're putting the hard pressure sales. I mean, they had thousands of different. Uh, <coughs> of these oil perfumes like this nard, which are very different than our perfumes here. You know, the ones we have here aren't really oils. They're mixed with alcohol and everything. You could take the lid off of one of these and it never dissipates. You know, it just lasts forever. And so, you know, they're putting the hard sale on us and and then they say, oh, do you want some tea? You know, so, okay, you know, we'll have some tea. And this lady's, you know, we're sitting on these couches and this lady's, you know, bringing all these samples over, and one of them, it smelled kind of good, and, you know, we're buying this stuff for our wives, right, and and um, um, I said, what is this one called, and she said something about surprise at midnight, and she's rolling her eyes, you know, <laughs> so I don't think I want that one, you know, <laughs> but uh, something weird like that, you know, but um, interestingly, then, uh, Another guy comes in, keep in mind where we're at, but the, the irony of this is, you know, what Mark and I do for a living with the addiction stuff, and this guy tries to sell us some hash. <laughs> <There too. laughs> no thanks. But, uh, I, I, you know, when I read this about this nard, you know, that this in this alabaster flask, they had all that, that kind of stuff in that place, you know, and there was really intricate little pieces of, of stuff that they would pour the oil in and package it really neat. So uh, alabaster is carved from a variety of Egyptian marbles. This is really pretty stuff. And these flasks had a long neck with a small opening from which you would, the the, the uh, idea of the small opening was so only a few little drops of liquid could come out, 
right? So you didn't waste it because, like I said, it's really strong and it doesn't dissipate like cologne or perfume does here. But Mary, instead of limiting her expression to a few drops, she snaps the neck on the thing which then allows, instead of just a couple drops to come out, she can now pour it, right? She broke the flask, pours it over his head, and John 12, 3 tells us that she poured some of it on his feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. John also tells us that it was a Roman pound, which correlates to 12 ounces, and, that, and the ointment is described as pure nard, very costly, and nard plants are a native of India. Google it when you get home, and it's a really pretty plant. Um, it's a, a neat-looking plant, and and uh, these uh, in India was kind of the source of these fine ointments of the day. And pure means, of course, that it wasn't diluted, which then shows us that it was very, very expensive stuff. You know, I don't know what the uh, most expensive perfume on the market is today, but this was a lot more than whatever that is, right? Mary's possession of such a costly perfume shows us that that her family had to have been a wealthy family. You know, the average family would not have had this thing. And another commentator, a guy named Scroge, said, The story of Mary's graceful act is one of the most beautiful on record. It is a story of loving devotion, revealing the acceptable motive, natural modes, and true measure of Christian service. So this scene was stunning. The smell of the perfume would have permeated the entire house, right? And interestingly, to me anyway, the response from some of, of the dinner guests, it was mixed. Look at verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So Mark doesn't tell us what's going, you know, tell us who got things stirred up, but again, John does. In John 12, 4 through 6, we read, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used used to help himself to what was put into it. Boy, you talk about greed, right? As the scent of that perfume whiffs, wafts, how do you say that? Wafts, wafts, whiffs, which one is it? Wafts. Wafts, I didn't hit it right at all. (laughs) Wafts through the house, you know, As that goes through the house, the scent is going. Judas managed to persuade these others, and they scold her. They scold her. They're mad, and they insist that the perfume had been wasted. It could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, denarii is a day's wage for a common laborer. 300 of them would be what? You're talking about a year's pay is what Judas is saying. You know, um... You wasted a year's pay on pouring that on him. So this is a really interesting thought. Think about this. In the mind of Judas, he could readily evaluate the value of that perfume. It's it's material value. It's material worth. But he was unable to even begin 
to comprehend what had prompted Mary to do that. That struck me so hard. You know, Judas had no interest in the poor. You know, can, can you identify with that statement? You know, that Judas immediately recognized the value, the material wealth that was just wasted, but totally missed the heart of Mary in worshiping her Lord. You know, that, that's hard, isn't, isn't it? I, I just think of, ugh, you know, how many times have I been like Judas? How many times have I not sacrificed the way that the Lord perhaps would want me to? But Judas, he was a thief who had been embezzling money from the other disciples, and he wanted the perfume sold so he could pilfer it also. Again, he didn't care about the poor. He was looking out for himself. A commentator named Jones said the following about this. It is not the concern of the philanthropist you have here, but the rage of the disappointed thief parading itself as the concern of a philanthropist. Boy, you talk about hypocrisy, right? So Jesus um, said in verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus acted to protect her, right? He corrected the misguided anger of the disciples and shows that Mary's behavior was a beautiful act of kindness. So the disciples thought that they knew the mind of Christ, but they, they were badly mistaken, weren't they? Because Jesus put himself between Mary and the attackers. He, in verses 7 and 8, he actually vindicates her actions, which is, uh, he, kinda, he quotes Deuteronomy 15:11 almost perfectly, for you will, verse 7, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But then he reminded them, but you will not always have me. That had to be piercing to them. I don't know about Judas, but the others, it had to be piercing to them. His point was that they should have been worshiping him like Mary was doing. We have to keep in our minds as well that worship is always the ultimate priority. The ultimate priority. John Piper says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions will cease one day, but worship is forever. Right? So we do mission work because we're going to people that aren't worshiping God to teach them about God so that they can become worshipers. But when that's been completed according to God's plan, missions won't exist anymore. So remember that Jesus had taught them in chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, and you shall, have, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus would be crucified in a few days. So this was no time for charity, right? This was time for worship. So he tells them in verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So she had embraced, I guess, the only opportunity that, she, that, she, that was open to her to serve him. She didn't know what was going to happen in the next few days. She, I'm taking this opportunity she somehow thought that when the tragedy of his death occurred, she wasn't going to be able to be there. So she decides that she's going to anoint his body now. And she acted to show her love and sympathy while she could. And knowing her heart, in verse 9, Jesus 
commended her. He says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So 2,000 years have passed since the testimony of this uh, sacrificial act of Mary. And, you know, here we are. We're still talking about it, right? And her, her heartfelt gesture looking to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ provides us with a compelling example of selflessness and extravagant praise to God that honors God. Um, so I think you and I need to ask ourselves, what does her magnificent example tell us that Jesus wants from us today? What do you think? What learning that, studying that, seeing her sacrifice, she didn't care. She was going all out. What impact, what, what should that have, how should that impact our lives today? Everything. Pardon? Everything. Everything? All right. Okay. Okay. And how do we practically do that in America today? The most wealthy nation on the planet, well, maybe Dubai, I guess, is more wealthy, but Chris, the, one, the most wealthy proclaiming Christianity, how do we do that practically? Tomorrow morning, Monday morning, how do you get up and go to work or what you do tomorrow? How, how does that, giving all, giving our whole, everything we have, practically what is that? I think recognize the materialistic world we live in. Like when I read this story, I think I would have been one of the guys like, ooh, that's a whole year's pay. Yeah. thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah. Um, so just recognize we, we do live in a materialistic culture and challenge our own selves to mm-hmm. not look at that so much. Yeah. The spiritual importance of the things that we yeah. Now, that in mind with, I watched a couple of videos last night of Paul Washer and John Piper and John MacArthur and going against, you know, they were attacking that wealth gospel thing that's going on here, right? And Yeah, so that would certainly fit in well. And, you know, um, and Paul Washer said this, but I heard it right off the lips of the guy teaching over there, Martin Indigno's teaching for David Kemp today, and I heard... Two weeks ago in our small group, or whenever it was, uh, two or three weeks ago, he said this, quote, I was sick of the American missionaries coming to Africa. So when he first met Shane, get away from me, you're one of them. You're one of them. And why? Because they're coming with a false gospel. They're coming with a gospel of wealth, the prosperity gospel. And Paul Washer said that last night. He said in, in some of his mission travels, he is told by the nationals, keep your American missionaries away from our people. Why? Because they're preaching a false gospel, a gospel of wealth. And here you got a lady that poured it all out, a whole year's pay. You know, I know our churches give sacrificially, just look on the back of the bulletin each week, you know, but... You know, has anybody really ever given a whole year's pay? You know, um, and I'm not, you know, 
saying that you do that, but you know, one one thing I thought of with that giving giving our whole is doing whatever it is and whatever I can do today or tomorrow at work or wherever I'm at, whatever I can do to enhance to build the kingdom of God. Whatever it's going to take from me to build the kingdom of God. Now, certainly the wealth the you know the financial end is part of that, but another big part of that is our time, right? You know, wow, gosh, you know, it's six o'clock. I, I've worked hard all day. You know, this guy just called and he wants to meet. Uh, dinner's going to be ready in 10 minutes. Hurry up with that. I got to go meet this guy. I mean, does that sound like what Mary would say? Right? I, I think just to whatever it takes, you know, that TV show can wait, right? Or that computer game can wait, you know, our time. You know, perhaps if we don't have great resources, our time can be invested in the kingdom of God. Um, that's, that's a big one, to build his kingdom. Uh, God wants our devotion to be, our devotion to him to be informed by the understanding of who he really is. And um, again, you know, Mary sacrificed, but look at what he was getting ready to sacrifice, right? Far and above anything that we ever could. Um, now, I guess we'll have to finish verse 10 and following. Well, we could go. We can finish this. We'll go. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. He sought the opportunity to do it. So you talk about a contrast, right? On the one hand, you got uh, the, the love and the devotion of Mary, and then you got these guys over here betraying. Um, I can't think of any excuse that he had to betray Jesus. After all, he was one of the twelve. Was that a privileged thing? Absolutely, right? And for many months, he'd been living with Jesus in his immediate presence, he'd been eating and drinking and traveling with him. He'd seen the strength of Jesus' voice when he calmed the storm, and when he cursed the barren fig tree, when he rebuked and devoured the, those that were, uh, I mean, when he rebuked those who were devoured widows' houses. He, Judas had seen all that, but he'd also seen his tender voice when Jesus pleaded with sinners to come and find rest in him. But... He'd seen Jesus heal the handicapped, and I'm sure a lot of other things. And in Matthew even 26, it says that all this, and he still decided to deliver, to deliver Jesus into the hands of cruel men, all for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe it was that he was overwhelmed with the feelings of disillusionment and frustration. You know, man, he just lost all this money on that perfume. The political party wasn't set up. Man, I was banking on getting in there and being part of that, you know, and now he's going to die. You know, I'm, I'm out of here. So none of the gospel accounts really give us a definite reason, but they do point to the presence of greed and satanic temptation. Uh, Luke 22, 3 tells us, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the, who was of the number of the twelve. Verse 11 in our text here says, And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, talk about a gift on a platter to these guys. 
we don't have to look for a way to get him any. Forget the stealth. One of them's giving him to us, right? And, um, I mean, listen to the correlation of Mark, uh, Matt, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I kind of pulled it all together, and we'll go through this discourse like this. So, Judas, this is him. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you, chief priest? We promised to give you 30 pieces of silver as soon as you agreed to deliver him into our hands. Judas, I agree. The chief priest, after weighing out the money, here are the 30 pieces of silver. Judas takes them and departs. The chief priest were not going to let this golden opportunity to pass by, right? They knew very well that if Judas had the money in his pocket, they could count on him. So with the money in his possession, he feels obligated and he goes into action. He sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, with all this, it's really difficult to understand how this could happen. But we have to, this is what I said at the beginning on the sovereignty of God, we have to remember, can't forget that God is in complete control of everything, every second of every day, right? And this satanically inspired betrayer was actually fulfilling biblical prophecy. And... um, Judas, I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus declared in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Judas's betrayal was part of the eternal plan of redemption, right? Even though it's hard for us to understand... It's part of God's eternal plan. Scripture teaches that God does move people's wills, but in such a way that that person acts freely and voluntarily. Now, these are hard things to understand. Me and some guys studied that this week, right? We must keep in mind that God is never the author of sin. Though people's sinful intents and actions serve the purpose of God, we must never conclude that God has induced anyone to sin. James 1 13 through 15 says, let one, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So the fact that people's sinful intents and actions serve the sovereign purpose of God that does not make God the author of their sin or make them any less culpable. They're still fully culpable, right? And God judges people for the very very sins that he uses to carry out his purposes. Now, that's hard to understand, isn't it? It is for me, but that's how sovereign God is. And I think when we look at this life of Judas, the betrayer, That's part of God's eternal plan of redemption, and it shows me, anyway, how intricately involved God really is in the daily affairs of his people. And that's kind of the the way that I can justify in my mind how history is unfolding, right? So, any questions on that? We'll pick up next week um, in verse 12. Nobody has any questions? We'll be dismissed.